The Deathlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. For humans, the more mitochondria we have, the, the healthier we are and the more energy we have to carry about uh, our day-to-day -day activities. When we look at the, uh, the damage to the mitochondria, uh, it really is oxidative stress. And where does that oxygen come from? It's from breathing. Antioxidants might not necessarily always be the best thing because you're, you're reducing that beneficial oxidative stress that allows your body to adapt and get stronger. It is incredible important to make sure that dysfunctional cells are removed from the body when they're supposed to be because if, if that doesn't happen uh, they can stick around and continue to divide and that's the, the start of cancer so body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seem Lund, and our guest today is Dr. Lee No from Canada. Dr. Lee is a licensed naturopathic doctor who's received several rewards in medicine. He has held positions as medical advisor in companies, and he serves on the editorial advisory board for Canada's most read natural health magazine. His latest book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, talks about a new way of looking at disease, chronic illness, aging, and life itself from a completely revolutionary perspective. Dr. Lee, I'm so glad that you could make it to the show and uh, welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, can you tell us about your background and uh, what motivated you to write a book about mitochondria? So, uh, so as you just mentioned, I'm a naturopathic doctor by, by education, and I'm not sure what uh, that means for you uh, in, in Europe and um, uh, your, your audience. But in Canada, we're seen as primary care physicians, so very similar to uh, medical doctors. So our training is the same. Uh, but uh, I, at, that at the time when I developed this interest for mitochondria, I was actually consulting for a company that did a lot of business with a nutrient called coenzyme Q10, which I'm sure you're you're aware of, and uh, this is uh, and, and this particular brand had um, a well-researched version that was used in hospitals and other medical clinics. And at that time, there was a lot of interest in using coenzyme Q10 for uh, women with infertility, and um, this was based out of uh, some rat studies that showed potential benefits for these women. And one of the things that started happening was that a lot of these uh, fertility clinics started to use coenzyme Q10. So there was one particular clinic that wanted me to come in and do a presentation for their doctors and nurses to help them understand why they need to recommend CoQ10 to their female patients. Mm. And I, we learned about mitochondria in school, uh, even back in high school and in, including medical school, but we never really understood the importance of it. And it was in my pr preparation for this, uh, this presentation that I really started to dig deep and not only understand why CoQ10 is so great for these women, and that, again, boils down to mitochondrial function, but it just opened up so much more where I started to realize that dysfunctional mitochondria is linked to so many different things. And again, because this is something that I didn't really learn in school, we really touched upon mitochondria at a very basic level. I just felt that it was something that needed to be shared. So one of the things I did notice is that there is a lot of good resources out there, um, but there didn't seem to be one comprehensive resource that looked at the various aspects of mitochondria, including you know, the evolutionary biology part, 
the health conditions associated with mitochondria, and then of course uh, the therapy part. So I felt I felt there needed to be uh, some resource out there that can kind of pull everything together. Mm, yeah, I totally agree with you in this sense that uh, you kind of you collected all of the necessary information about the mitochondria and uh, how it relates to disease into this one you know compact uh, book format, and I really enjoyed it. What I also like liked about was like how you opened up the introduction of the book with a paragraph uh, from Star Wars, and uh, you explained yeah. uh, you explained how these things called the midichlorians are these components of of the force. And uh, without them, life wouldn't exist. Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. So are you basically trying to say that these midichlorians are like the same as the mitochondria or the equivalent to mitochondria? That's right. All right. So what Absolutely, are the, yeah. And so what are the mitochondria sorry? and how are they, how do they are this life force in a sense? Yeah, so, so basically when you look at everything that happens in our body, Everything requires energy, and it's the mitochondria that produces over 90% of the energy that our bodies need. So uh, when, you, when you consider you know, life is energy, uh, and energy is life, you can see how important mitochondria, when it's responsible for producing over 90% of that, how important that is for life. So um, I, I know George Lucas, with uh, his writing of uh, Star Wars and incorporating the midichlorians, it was actually based on um, uh, mitochondria. Uh, um, mitochondria um but it, it's really cool to see that you know what he wrote uh, about midichlorians in star wars has a lot of relevance to uh, mito uh mitochondria in in real life and um i won't go as so far as to say that it gives us you know the power of the force uh, but it is one of those things that are critical for for our health and and uh, the the more mitochondria you have just like uh, in in star wars the more midichlorians uh, a person has the more jedi uh type abilities uh, they have whereas for humans the more mitochondria we have the, the healthier we are and the more energy we have to carry about uh, our day-to-day -day activities i need a midichlorian count mm, right but uh, how, how many mitochondria do we actually have in our body yeah so so that depends on the cell that we're looking at and, and, and the tissue because the number of mitochondria we have in any given cell is dictated by the energetic demands of that particular cell. So uh, when we look at metabolically active tissues like the heart or the brain, we typically see you know, a couple thousand mitochondria per cell. Uh, but then there are other uh, less metabolically active cells such as skin cells or, or red blood cells that have very few uh, mitochondria. So it ranges from, you know, just a few, maybe even less than a hundred, all the way up to over a couple thousand per cell. The reading is off the chart. Over 20,000. Even Master Yoda doesn't have a midichlorian count that high. No Jedi has. Mm, yeah, like, like you mentioned that the mitochondria are responsible for generating energy and all you do all the time in a sense is emanate some sort of energy, like your heart is beating all the time, your brain is working your blood is flowing, you know, you're breathing, those things are demanding energy constantly. And yeah, like you said, life almost wouldn't exist without it. So how do, how do the mitochondria actually generate energy? Yeah, so, uh, so this takes us back to um, high school biology where we learned about uh, a process called glycolysis. Uh, so we're, um, 
glycolysis is actually the first step of energy production and it actually doesn't even happen inside the mitochondria. It happens in the, the fluid compartment of the cell called the cytosol. So this is where we um, take uh, certain fuels like glycogen or blood glucose and we turn it into other smaller compounds. And those smaller compounds then get transferred into the mitochondria where it participates in the next cycle of energy production called uh, I learned it as the Krebs cycle. I think the, uh, the newer generation is learning it as the tricarboxylic acid cycle or the citric acid cycle. But out of there comes other molecules that then get fed into the last part of energy production called the electron transport chain or the respiratory chain or oxidative phosphorylation. So I know there's a number of different ways to call it, but basically what happens here is electrons are fed through a chain of compounds and as those electrons flow through pain, a little bit of energy is released, and that essentially pumps protons or hydrogen ions into our reservoir. So you can think of energy production happening in a very similar way to, say, a hydroelectric dam. And this is the analogy I use in my book, is that uh, you know, with the hydroelectric dam, we have a reservoir behind the dam, and you fill that up, and as the pressure builds up, that water is allowed to flow back through specialized channels and it, it turns turbines that then generate electricity. Mm. Well, in our bodies, it happens in a very similar way where we're pumping these protons or hydrogen ions into this reservoir. And as that pressure builds up, at the end, we have those hydrogen ions flow back through a different channel called ATP synthase. And that actually turns these turbines that generate uh, cellular energy in the in the form of ATP or adenosine triphosphate. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. But uh, we also know like that there are different ways of uh, creating ATP with different fuel sources. So what are what are like, like how what kind of fuel sources can the mitochondria produce energy from? Yeah. So um, well, when we start with glycolysis, we're starting with blood glucose or, or glycogen. But uh, we can also produce uh, energy through fats, through a process called beta oxidation. And that's very important because the vast majority of our energy that our bodies produce is actually produced through fats. So it's anywhere from 60 to 70% of the energy that we have is actually produced through the burning of fats. Uh, and then, of course, there are other ways or other fuels such as uh, certain amino acids that can generate, uh, that help generate some, some energy. But, but fats is is by far the, the most important fuel source. And uh, there is a byproduct of fat burning called ketone bodies or uh, ketones. And that's another uh, alternative source of fuel for, uh, for mitochondria as well. So we have various um, uh, fuel sources and that is by design through evolution. Uh, we've, uh, our bodies have adapted to be able to use different fuel sources in different situations. Um, and, and that helps us uh, you know, if we don't have blood glucose, if we don't have a meal immediately, we, we start to rely on more fat burning and that can take us through the next couple of days if, you know, if we didn't catch our, our next meal in time. Mm. What about uh, lactic acid? Also, I've also heard that, that that can also be used as fuel. That's right. Yeah. So lactic acid. Uh, so our bodies generate lactic acid when we go through uh, glycolysis. Um, but then, and, and often that's seen as a byproduct, but what we can do is through, uh, in the liver, through a different process called the Cori cycle, we can actually convert that lactic acid back uh, into an energy uh, making molecule. So uh, lactic acid in many cases can be used as a, as a fuel source as well. So this goes back to our, our discussion earlier, or what I said earlier, that we have many different uh, 
options for, for yeah. fuel sources. Yeah, it, it comes to show like how amazing or how complex your body is, is in, in terms of you can still find a way to produce energy even even if, if the ketones won't suffice or if you're in this different situation where you're burning a lot of glucose or creating a lot of lactic acid, then you're still not going to waste anything. Without the midichlorians, life could not exist and we would have no knowledge of the force. But what kind of fuel is like preferred by the mitochondria? Yeah, so, so I think, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, fats. Um, so the vast majority of the fats that we consume in, in a Western diet are long-chain fatty acids, and that is uh, by far the, the most uh, plentiful source of fuel in what our bodies typically use. But in general, fatty acids are, are the preferred fuel source. Now, we can look at other uh, types of fatty acids like medium-chain fatty acids. Uh, so that's where things like, uh, you know, um, uh, and it's very popular with the, the whole ketogenic uh, diet and uh, the popularity of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really fatty acids in general that, uh, that the mitochondria prefer. Now, keep in mind that with, with burning of fatty acids, it's a little bit more complex and involved than, than say, burning glucose. Um, but it, because fat, fatty acids are so dense in energy, there's a lot of energy in one fatty acid molecule that that is the, the preferred fuel source. But we also need other uh, nutrients like uh, L-carnitine, as an example, to uh, be able to utilize uh, long-chain fatty acids. Mm. I believe, like, if, I, if I'm correct, then L-carnitine is like this uh, shuttle that helps to shuttle those uh, fatty acids into the mitochondria or something. Is it like a transport that aid? True. Okay, okay. That's right. But, but, but mm -hmm. can there be, like, too much fat as well? Can like too many, too many, too much fat in your diet be bad for the mitochondria? Well, it it, it depends. Uh, so so this really goes to um, my general philosophy of uh, moderation is key for a a anything. Um, too little of something is bad. Too much of something is bad. And I think that is very true for um, for anything that's related to the mitochondria, including fuel sources. So you know, having some glucose is fine. Too much is is damaging. That I, I think we can say the same thing about fatty acids, where you know some some is fine, but too much um, can throw off the, the different aspects of energy making processes that happen. And and the idea is to keep everything in balance. So um, it is. I, I think you do have to take a lot of fat to get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of times people think, oh, if you know, especially yeah. with the ketogenic diet, if yeah. some fat is good more must more. be better and that's not always the case yeah like the, you can start adding some copious amounts of fats into everything you do like and and even like this what about these exogenous ketones as well like ketones are a good source of fuel but would like artificially spiking them up be have a negative side effect yeah that's a good question because i've been reading a lot more about exogenous ketones um one of the the, the, the clients that i'm consulting for right now is a sports nutrition company and uh, there is a lot of talk about exogenous ketones, and I, I'll admit I haven't done a lot of the research uh, to adequately answer this um, this question. But uh, one of the things that I think I'm gonna find when I start looking into it is that it's it's going to be a little bit more nuanced uh, than just thinking that oh, if ketones are good, um, taking exogenous ketones. Are better. Um, mm. Keep in mind when we go through nutritional ketosis. Um, by nutrition, we are uh, there are many other processes that are are activated through that that process. So we not only have uh, um, ketogenesis in the presence of low blood glucose, 
Um, but there are other things that happen in the body that help our, our bodies adapt to that, that low glucose um, ketogenic state. When we take exogenous ketones, we're adding ketones into a state of the body where you, you might have high levels of glucose in the blood. And what, what does that mean? And I don't know what that means. Uh, again, I haven't done the research, but I'm, I'm guessing that um, it, 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 we're going to start to see some, some details that kind of help us understand where the value of exogenous ketones come into play when we're using them and when maybe we shouldn't be using them. But um, at least from some presentations I've seen on that, it does look like exogenous ketones can be a benefit in certain, in, under certain circumstances. Mm, yeah, like I, I, I've, I've done some research and it shows that although like most of the research has done on like people who have a, some sort of uh, neurodegenerative disease or something like that, and uh, it comes to show that their exogenous ketones can be very good as a, as a fuel substrate for, for the brain and such. Uh, but at the same time, like I wouldn't imagine, I, wouldn't, I would think like people who have who are already keto adapted in a sense, and they're producing quite a lot of ketone bodies themselves, then there wouldn't be much much benefit in ter- in terms of that because they're already low low glucose state, right? Um, and and I also like fear like it may offset the NAD plus and NADH levels as well in the body. Like it's still a source of fuel despite it being you know ketogenic and uh, non caloric. So it's still it can still have right. some negative side effects in terms of like longevity and things like that. Right, potentially. And I think yeah, I, and, and I wish I had more I had done more research to be able to answer this, but it is something that is is emerging and, and is of interest to me and I'll eventually get to it. But it, it's really cool that there is and this is a thing with mitochondria is that so many things affect mitochondria and as as Research is being done. We're starting to understand different things that can help the mitochondria, and there's uh, it's a constantly uh, uh, evolving field. So we're going to start to see, you know, not just exogenous ketones, but so many other things that are going to be promoted as beneficial for the mitochondria. But it's important to understand, you know, the background story and to just make sure that we're not being um, uh, overmarketed to. You know, we we take uh, we always look at the science first. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, that's, that's what you mentioned in your book as well, like that, that the mitochondria are becoming more and more, uh, they, they, they gain more publicity and more attention over the last few years. Like, can you give us a, like more, a brief history about how science and, and, and medicine has changed their perspective on the mitochondria and, uh, and human optimization or human longevity? Yeah, so, uh, so I think in the early days when we discovered mitochondria we and we we found out that they are responsible for producing energy that's all that we we knew them as but um, newer research is showing that um, outside of energy one of the other important aspects of mitochondria is something called not apoptosis or apoptosis which is cellular suicide and this is incredibly important because the human body is shaped um, through subtraction uh, so just like, uh, you know, a sculptor, um, you know, you, we're not adding pieces of concrete to a, a, a sculpture. Essentially what we end up doing is build, you know, a big chunk of concrete and then we chip away at it. And in a very similar sense, our bodies through our growth in utero and uh, early on in life, we're, we're just adding. And then what ends up happening and, um, this is incredibly important for, for further development after, after we, um, we, we reach a certain age, is we want to shape the body. And that is where certain cells that are no longer needed 
are, um, are um, taken out of the, the body. And that's important to, to make sure that the, the brain is wired properly, that we don't end up with uh, webbed fingers, as an example. Um, but it's also important because it is incredibly important to make sure that dysfunctional cells are removed from the body when they're supposed to be, because if, if that doesn't happen, uh, they can stick around and continue to divide, and that's the, the start of cancer. So what we're seeing is that the mitochondria is incredibly important for, uh, for, for cancer prevention, uh, even treating cancer. Um, but that's the other reason I think um, the medical community is really sp- focusing a lot more on the mitochondria is because we're starting to realize that at the, the root of a lot of these uh, degenerative conditions, even outside of uh, cancer, but the more common ones like uh, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, uh, chronic fatigue, all these um, conditions have dysfunctional mitochondria at its root. So the benefit to this is that if we target the health of one particular organelle of the cell, and keep in mind, I'm simplifying here, uh, because it is, again, it's more complex than that. There's endoplasmic reticulum stress that comes into play. There's many different interactions with mitochondria, but if we can make sure that the mitochondria are functioning properly, we can reduce the risk of cancer and all sorts of different uh, degenerative diseases, and including potentially extending our lifespan and our health span at the same time. Mm, yeah, that is like the theory is that you know, like you have to preserve your mitochondria and uh, prevent prevent them from uh, dying. So, what causes mitochondrial degradation? What are the main causes? Yeah, so there, uh, un- unfortunately, um, just like mitochondria is related to many different things, unfortunately, many different things can have a negative impact on mitochondria. So, um, one of the uh, um, one of the basic things to, um, to relevant to, to most people listening is a, a mismatch between supply and demand. Uh, so when we have too much supply of, of energy in the, in, the, in the form of food um, versus demand or the energetic de- uh, needs of our body, uh, that's when electrons in the electron transport chain can spill out uh, and create uh, some damage to the mitochondria. So that's one of the reasons why um, at the cellular level, we see overconsumption of food is so tightly connected with all sorts of different diseases from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, et cetera, and, and even cancer. At the same time, on the demand side, we can also see this, the same thing where having a sedentary life, so we're, we're not creating that demand for, for energy. So if we have too much supply and we're not using that, uh, that fuel, uh, sed- a sedentary lifestyle has also been linked to all those different uh, health conditions that, that I just um, uh, described. So not only, you know, moderating intake according to your, your body's energy, but also making sure that we get off our and actually do some physical activity on a daily basis. That's also very important. Outside of, outside of that mismatch in energy um, supply versus demand, we see uh, many environmental toxins have negative impacts to, to mitochondria. So uh, different pesticides uh, have been shown to, to damage mitochondria, different pharmaceutical drugs, uh, different food additives. Uh, so the, these are all, uh, even, even air pollution, different um, things that we, uh, chemicals that we find in our water, these all have a very negative impact um, to, to the mitochondria. So uh, it's important to not only, you know, try to live as clean of a lifestyle as possible, but also just be mindful of how much we're eating versus how much uh, physical activity we're doing. Mm. And I also believe like oxidative stress 
in general or chronic stress, it's going to damage the DNA and damage mitochondria as well. So. And yeah, people live a very wired up life with too much stress already. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like uh, DNA damage actually occurs all the time, right? You know, like just moving around and breathing, just simple breathing. It's does the, does that cause damage to the mitochondria as well? Well, um, when we look at the, uh, the damage to the mitochondria, uh, it really is oxidative stress. And where does that oxygen comes from? It's from breathing. Uh, so every time we breathe, we're breathing in oxygen, and that oxygen is going to make its way to the cells and then to the mitochondria. Now, in most cases, that's not a bad thing. Um, but in, under certain circumstances, like uh, if we have a mismatch between energy and demand, though that oxygen um, can become something bad called superoxide. And that is a free radical that can damage uh, the DNA and the mitochondria. Uh, so now, again, uh, the story is a lot more complex because superoxide and those free radicals are not necessarily always bad. I and mean, this is what I, one of the things that I talk about in my book as well. Um, oxidative stress under controlled situations are actually highly beneficial. Um, and actually, there are studies to show that, you know, controlled oxidative stress can actually extend lifespan. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's always, I, 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 in general, I say uh, free radicals are bad, but it's, it, I always have to make it clear that we're not talking bad right across the board. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that, uh, we, we, you know, uh, when we breathe, we're breathing in the oxygen. As long as it's in a, in a healthy environment, we're minimizing the re uh, production of oxidative stress and any oxidative stress that we do produce um, that we want it to be uh, serving a beneficial uh, a part uh, versus a, a damaging part. Hmm. So that's, that that kind of ties in together with the concept of hormesis, right? Of a small amount of oxidative stress and toxin yeah. can be beneficial because you don't want to completely eliminate your exposure to these kinds of things because you'll you'll get you'll become less resistant and you'll weaken your mitochondria in a sense. So some oxidative stress is good. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's very yeah that's exactly what hormesis is and and mitohormesis is. It's uh, just making sure that. Uh, and one of the reasons why, when we look at uh, antioxidants, I know everyone talks about antioxidants, yeah. and especially from the dietary supplement industry, everyone wants to take antioxidants, and they do have a function under certain circumstances, especially if you're a, a sick individual. Uh, studies have shown that it can help those individuals. But if you're a healthy individual, and you're looking to maintain health and uh, improve longevity, um, antioxidants might not necessarily always be the best thing um, because you're, you're reducing that beneficial oxidative stress that allows your body to adapt and get stronger. Yeah, that, exactly. Like, uh, I, I wouldn't, I would, I would imagine like if uh, there are also like some studies showing that taking antioxidant supplements in a post-workout scenario after a workout is actually going to blunt the beneficial response of the muscle hypertrophy and uh, performance as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a good. Yeah, I, I read that study as well. Yeah, it's a good example of how you actually need to have that uh, oxidative stress response in order to adapt and get stronger. There's a great matter, great advantage. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Uh, you wouldn't recommend people to take like vitamin C or glutathione or something like that. Well, it's not that I don't recommend it. It just has to be done in a way that allows us to get the benefits of those nutrients, um, but without limiting the benefits of the oxidative stress. So as an example, right. if we're talking about uh, athletic performance and training, 
taking that right after uh, training can blunt our positive response to training from that oxidative stress that's generated. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't take it, but they just need to take it at a different time. So I think in that same study, or in a, maybe it was a different study, I, I can't remember, the, uh, the author suggested that um, taking antioxidants during competition uh, might uh, might help performance and prevent um, uh, early onset of fatigue and things like that. Um, but during training where you're trying to adapt and, and, and improve long, um, your endurance, things like that, that's when it might not be the, the best idea. So you, it doesn't mean that these individuals can't take uh, um, uh, supplements like glutathione or vitamin C. It's just a matter of when. Mm, right, right. Yeah. And I would imagine like if, if someone is experiencing a lot of stress from work or something like that, then it's, it's still a good idea to take some something that's going to alleviate that. But uh, right. can, the, can the mitochondria like repair themselves as well? Do they have some sort of an innate uh, repair mechanism? Yeah, so uh, one thing that um, we know is that in each mitochondria, we have about on average 10 copies of its DNA. So, uh, so let me backtrack in case people don't know that mitochondria has, has their own set of DNA. Uh, they do, and this is because you know, 2 billion years ago when, uh, when uh, you know, evolution of multicellular organisms started, uh, mitochondria were bacteria, and over the, the course of 2 billion years, it's retained its own set of, of DNA. And the, um, the DNA can, um, can, uh, can be damaged, um, but the great thing is, is that because we have about 10 copies of DNA per mitochondria, the, um, the other healthy DNA can be used as a template to repair the, the, the damaged parts. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, mitochondria are always dividing and, and merging. And uh, when, when they divide, the, the mitochondrial DNA can get segmented into the daughter cells. So if we have, as an example, um, you know, out of 10, and I'm just using an artificial uh, scenario here, if we have out of 10 copies of DNA in a mitochondria, say two are critically damaged, um, and that mitochondria divides and in in the daughter cells we end up with say five and five well in the uh, maybe those two damaged uh, DNA, uh, dna end up in the one mitochondria and at that level the energy uh, the ability for that mitochondria to produce energy falls below a certain threshold where the signal is given that this mitochondria is no longer functioning let's get rid of it and then what we end up having is the healthy mitochondria with the healthy set of DNA. So there are not, not only can we repair the DNA, but through um, mitochondrial division, and this is totally by chance. We, it's not like we can say that we want all the my, bad my, uh, DNA to go into one mitochondria or the other. Uh, it, it's random, but there is a chance that we can potentially eliminate a lot of that damaged uh, uh, DNA. Now, does that happen in real life? We've seen that happen in real life, but again, it's not something that we can control at this point. Mm. So yeah, the key is to still uh, maintain mitochondrial efficiency in a sense, and uh, to yeah, to keep them at a certain threshold. So like, what are some of the nutrients that that gonna help to promote that to promote mitochondrial efficiency? Yeah. So um, the one that I think uh, most people will be familiar with when we we talk about mitochondrial nutrients is uh, coenzyme Q10. It's a, it's a readily available supplement. Uh, and coenzyme Q10 is, is a critical component of the electron transport chain or oxidative phosphorylation. So going back to that third 
process of energy uh, making. So um, when, we, when I talked about the electrons flowing from one complex to the next, uh, coenzyme Q10 uh, occupies what I would call the bottleneck of the, the, the process. So uh, if you look at a schematic of the electron transport chain, electrons enter at complex one and complex two. And both of those complexes pass electrons off to coenzyme Q10, which then takes the electrons to complex three and then down the, the, down the chain. So the, the fact that coenzyme Q10 has to accept electrons from two different complexes, again, if you just look at the, at, at a schematic and you have to identify a bottleneck, um, I would say CoQ10 is that bottleneck. So um, when, we, when we have uh, low levels of CoQ10, that's when our bodies are not able to produce the energy that it needs. And, uh, and many different things can go wrong. And that's one of the reasons why coenzyme Q10 and a number of different studies has been shown to be a benefit for all sorts of different health conditions. Um, magnesium is also another important uh, nutrient. Excuse me. Um, magnesium forms um, a critical part of the ATP molecule. So when we talk about ATP, I know we, we just say ATP, but in reality, it's magnesium ATP. And that's because that phosphate tail is stabilized by an ion of, of magnesium. Further, uh, magnesium is a cofactor in many different chemical re, um, reactions that happen in the body, and many of them related to the energy-making process. So making sure that we have enough magnesium in our diet is also critical, but unfortunately, most people don't get enough magnesium. Yeah. Uh, D-ribose is another one. D-ribose is, um, is the backbone of the adenosine molecule uh, that, that forms ATP. And when we are low in uh, the substrates of um, a, a adenosine or the purine pool, it's on the, our body's ability to create D-ribose is actually the rate-limiting step in, in bringing our bodies back to health. So if we can get exogenous sources of D-ribose, that really speeds up, uh, up the process. Um, and th there are many others. I mean, creatine is another one that's typically seen as a sports nutrition uh, uh, supplement, but now research is showing that it's incredibly beneficial to things like cardiovascular health, neurological health, cognitive health, and this all relates back to its, um, its, its um, ability to help our mitochondria produce energy. So there, there are many different uh, things, and that's uh, the, the good thing is that we have different options. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a bunch of them in your book, but uh, one thing that uh, popped out for me was like PQQ. I haven't heard about that one before. So, like, can you can you mention like what's briefly mention what what's that about? What do you use? Yeah, so so PQQ is a relatively newly discovered nutrient, um, and at one point I think it was thought to be a vitamin. So, at, at the definition of a vitamin is something a nutrient that's critically important for our health or at least one biochemical reaction and that our bodies don't produce it. So we have to get it from an external source. Now, newer research is um, uh, questioning whether it's really a vitamin or not, but the, the, um, by, by definition, but what we're starting to see is that we do really need small amounts and because our bodies don't produce it, we have to get it from, from external sources, from our food. And one of the things that um, uh, studies on PQQ has been shown to do, now keep in mind when we're looking at human clinicals, we're, um, they're using much higher doses than we would typically find in food. Um, in, in, in the range of say 20 milligrams, which is a lot, um, we're, we see benefits to things like cognitive health. Uh, so um, and numerous human clinicals have shown benefits to our ability to, to function at a higher cognitive capacity. Um, other studies, I think animal studies have shown that it, uh, as long as we have enough PQQ in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the body, 
We can reduce the damage that, that occurs from ischemic events like heart attack and stroke. Uh, it's been shown to help improve um, uh, repair of the neurological um, uh, system. So there are a number of different things that, um, that come from PQQ. And, uh, and a lot of that really boils down to the fact that it improves the function of the mitochondria. And how does it do that? It essentially, I mean, it does a number of different things, but with, with, with respect to the mitochondria, it was one of the first nutrients to show something called mitochondrial biogenesis. So essentially what that means is we're producing more mitochondria. The benefit to this is that, and this goes back to what we, um, we talked about at the start of our, our uh, conversation, uh, the more mitochondria we have, the more energy that cell can produce. So um, by uh, helping the mitochondria divide and create more mitochondria in the cell, PQQ basically just ramps up energy production in, in the cells mm. and everything starts to work better. He could use the force to influence the midichlorians to create life. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's quite fascinating. Uh, but what about some actual foods? Which kind of foods contain these uh, compounds? Yeah, so this is, this is where I think a lot of people are happy to hear that uh, the, by far the best source of PQQ is uh, um, cacao or theobroma cacao or, you know, dark chocolate. Um, that is extremely high in, in PQQ. Um, what's interesting that next best is uh, human breast milk, which is uh, something that is unfortunately not something that is readily available for most people. Um, but under that uh, is pretty much all other other foods. Now, if I had to generalize, I would say fermented foods are going to be higher in PQQ, and that's because bacteria uh, are what produce PQQ. So um, when we use bacteria to ferment foods, there's going to be a little bit more PQQ in fermented foods versus non-fermented foods. But it's also interesting to note that uh, uh, when we create chocolate, we it, uh, theobroma cacao, the cocoa beans, actually go through a fermentation process mm -hmm. as well. So... Um, I, and and what that's one of the things I, I talk about in my book is I think uh, that's one of the reasons why dark chocolate consumption has been linked to so many different health conditions. And of course, I never want to uh, discount the other healthy compounds that are found in chocolate, dark chocolate. Um, but one of the things that a lot of people don't mention and don't even know about is uh, the, the PQQ content of chocolate. And when you think of um, uh, dark chocolate showing benefits to cognitive function, uh, reduces the risk of cardiovascular diseases, um, improves athletic performance and endurance. Uh, all these things, uh, if you look at the mechanism, can be related back to mitochondrial function and mit mitochondrial health. And if it's the best source of PQQ, um, you know, we can extrapolate and conclude that maybe it's the PQQ content that's uh, allowing healthy, uh, chocolate to be so healthy. Mm, yeah, that, Again, that, in moderation. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, like usually people associate dark chocolate with you know antioxidants and the caffeine and theobromine but yeah the pqq thing that makes more sense in a sense that it's, it's actually promoting much of mitochondrial biogenesis but uh, like coenzyme q10 what foods have uh, coenzyme q10 so uh, coenzyme q10 is predominantly found in animals uh well that and that that makes sense when we eat the animals uh we're eating their, their cells in mitochondria, and therefore their, uh, their coenzyme Q10. Um, the interesting thing is, is that organ meats are far better sources of uh, coenzyme Q10 than just uh, the mm. meat or the, the, yeah. the flesh. 
And that, uh, again, goes back to when, when we even, even in the human body, when we look at um, the energetic demands uh, of different tissues and organs in our body, the organs are often more energy intensive um, tissues in the body. So again, if we, we say that's true for animals as well, uh, if we eat organ meats, um, that's where we're going to see the, the greatest concentration of uh, things like CoQ10. Mm, yeah, like you mentioned earlier as well, like the heart and these metabolically very active tissues, they have more mitochondria. So you're basically eating right. the mitochondria of the animal in this, in this sense. Right. But what about like mm-hmm. if someone is doing a vegan diet, how can they get like more coenzyme Q10? Yeah, so I think for, for uh, vegans, I think the ideal uh, source would be supplementation. Um, and, and I would say even for, for um, omnivores and meat eaters, I think uh, taking supplements is going to be uh, a lot better to really get that dose of CoQ10. And that's because when you look at clinical studies using CoQ10 as a therapeutic agent, we're looking at quite large quantities, much more than we would be able to consume from food. So even though, you know, meat and organ meats are, are, are good sources of coenzyme Q10, you would need to ingest an incredible amount to get the same amount that you're going to get from, you know, a couple of capsules of, of CoQ10. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, whether you're vegan or not, I think when it comes to trying to increase your levels of CoQ10, I think supplementation is going to be best. Yeah, like uh, the ancestral diets also show the same uh, same pattern. They they consume a lot of organ meats and uh, these these uh, foods that are higher in coenzyme Q10. And as modern people, we rarely eat those things anymore. You know, who, when was the last time people, how often do people actually eat like liver or heart? Like maybe yeah, once, <laughs> once or twice a year or something like the average American. And even, even I myself, who I, I believe like I eat a very, you know, diverse and very nutrient dense diet. I, I still eat like liver maybe once a week or something like that. So I, I should be, I, yeah. I definitely recommend people to supplement like liver and uh, these different uh, other organ meat capsules in a sense. So they're, they're definitely very good. But mm-hmm. uh, exercise is also obviously a very good way to boost uh, mitochondrial functioning. But can like overexercise damage the mitochondria? Yeah, and, and this again goes back to moderation is key. And, and unfortunately, sometimes a lot of uh, people think if some is bad, uh, good, then more must be better. And um, yeah, it, it's, it, you always have to keep in mind moderation for anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when we exercise, uh, I'll start by saying it's probably the most important factor, lifestyle factor um, involved in mitochondrial function and health. So you really need to exercise. If anyone's concerned about mitochondrial function and keeping them healthy, physical activity is critical. You have to do it. The thing is, is that when we exercise, we breathe in a lot more oxygen. And, and again, some oxidative stress is good. Um, that when we exercise, we're breathing in a lot more oxygen. We're creating beneficial oxidative stress that our bodies adapt to and become stronger. Keep in mind, though, if we overdo it, if we go too hard, we, we, we take that oxid, the level of oxidative stress beyond the threshold of where it becomes beneficial and it goes into the, the danger zone. So um, we want to really ensure that we're doing, um, we're increasing our intensity of, of um, physical uh, activity or exercise uh, in step with what our bodies can handle. Uh, and that's because, uh, and I'm going to simplify here, but 
when we exercise, and one of the ways that our bodies really adapt to exercise from at a mitochondrial perspective is that we, we place a little bit more energetic demand on our cells when we exercise. And as a response, our bodies adapt and create more mitochondria. And so what that means is that the workload um, at rest, which is the majority of the day, even for elite athletes, you know, they, they, they might train hard during a, a large portion of the day, but, you know, the rest of the day they're, they're at rest and at night they're sleeping. So during that vast majority of the day, the workload is shared amongst a greater number, a number of mitochondria and each mitochondria is under less stress. So during that time, they're producing less free radical, the, the damaging free radical. Mm. Then we go out and exercise, place a little bit more stress on, on, on the cells and they create more mitochondria. And that can continue to happen and, and we get stronger. But uh, if we overdo it, like I said, we create too much oxidative stress, more than the body can handle and more uh, that, that goes beyond what our body's uh, uh, capacity to, to neutralize and benefit from. And that's when uh, damaging effects of oxidative stress can start to set in. Mm. So what is like the best type of exercise for, for mitochondrial longevity, let's say? So it, um, first of all, I should say all types of exercises, whether we're talking resistance training or endurance training is going to be good. Uh, but if we're talking specifically about mitochondrial health, uh, endurance type exercises are going to be best. Uh, so we really want to have that endurance. We're, we're breathing, we're bringing in that oxygen, we're creating that, that beneficial level of oxidative stress and allowing our bodies to adapt and get stronger. Mm. Um, now there is, uh, you know, um, high-intensity interval training has been shown to also be uh, a great at in, in improving mitochondrial health. Um, so things, uh, any type of uh, sport that allows that, that high-intensity interval training type um, program to be implemented, like, uh, say, hockey or, or um basketball, soccer, things like that, where we're doing short bursts of intense um, activity followed by, you know, less uh, in intensity. So things like that can also be uh, more of a, a hack or a cheat to try to get um, uh, improvements to mitochondrial function without necessarily going for that uh, half an hour to an hour uh, jog or something like that. Mm, that's interesting because uh, I believe like soccer players and these professional athletes are actually the are more prone to getting heart attacks during games or something like that because they're overtaxing their systems. Or, <laughs> so it's quite ironic in a sense. Yes, but you know what's really, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I do mention in my book is something called athletic heart syndrome. And uh, this goes, um, and I won't get it um, to explain it is a little bit uh, more involved, but uh, what ends up happening is that after uh, extended periods of physical activity, um, are, we start to deplete the energy pool in our body and we need our bodies to regenerate that. But with, uh, with elite athletes, they often have intense training schedules and uh, their, their next bout of training, which is at a very high intensity, comes before their bodies are actually able to replenish the, the, what we call the purine pools. So over time, uh, we, we see this depletion of, of uh, uh, you know, things like... Uh, Denosine, um, and at one point uh, we're, that is going to fall below, below the threshold where we just the, the cells just can't produce the energy anymore, and that is uh, one of the reasons. And not in all cases this is the case, but in some cases this is the reason why we see perfectly healthy individuals um, 
you know, scrum to things like heart attack and, and, and unfortunately die. Right, right. So yeah, like you have to still recover from the stress and uh, allow your body to heal to be to actually that's adapt. right yeah yeah that's but, right but uh like you mentioned in your book also like the uh, brown fat and the co-thermogenesis how does that how does that relate to the mitochondria okay so yes with um when we as i mentioned with respect to supply and demand if we are producing too much energy and we're not using it up um, and I didn't get into why that, that's a bad thing, but essentially at, uh, when we look at the electron transport chain, if we're not using up that, um, the ATP that's produced, we're not generating um, the ADP. So when we use ATP, uh, the, uh, the third phosphate is broken off and we generate adenosine diphosphate, and that is the building block to create ATP. So it's, it's a continuous cycle. Um, if we don't use up that ATP, we start to run out of ADP, and that backs up the whole chain. So things, uh, when we back up the whole chain, the, the electrons spill out and create uh, free radicals. The way to kind of get around this is to create um, heat instead of energy. And that's where brown fat or brown adipose tissue comes into play because what's happening is that as the electrons are flowing through the, the electron transport chain and the hydrogen ions are coming back through uh, the specialized channel, instead of producing ATP, or energy that we would be required to use up, we generate heat. So there's, uh, and we just generate heat. So the idea is this can continue to, to happen. We just generate heat, but there's no need uh, to, to use up any, any energy. So essentially what we're doing is reducing the, the level of free radicals that are generated. Um, and this is one of the reasons why when we see, um, there, and there's a lot of research going on uh, to ways, in ways we can generate more uh, brown fat because what we're seeing is that individuals that are obese or overweight are typically lower, uh, have lower concentrations of, of brown fat. Individuals that have low brown fat are at higher risk of things like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, and things like that. So finding ways to improve the quantity of brown fat and help our bodies generate heat instead of energy um, essentially helps the mitochondrial function uh, better or stay healthier for a longer period of time. Mm, that is very interesting. Yeah, like uh, the, the difference between generating heat and energy. So like if you're burning calories through exercise let's say or or yeah you, your daily caloric intake is very high does that like is there this some sort of discrepancy between uh, mitochondrial efficiency in terms of being able to produce more energy per calorie or something of like that yeah so um so keep in mind when we anytime we're talking about um, uh, caloric intake it, it, i think it really is related to um how well or how much we use up as well so uh you know it a person can consume a lot of calories um, as long as they're doing a lot of physical activity. And I can't remember, um, I remember looking at uh, or hearing about uh, Michael Phelps, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, swimmer, Olympic swimmer, and the, the calories that he consumed. And I can't remember what it was, but it was like 20,000 calories a, yeah. a day or something crazy. But keep in mind that he was physically active, so he's burning that up. Mm. Uh, so for him, that was not an issue. But for, of course, someone, uh, a sedentary person consuming 20,000 calories per, per day. Uh, and not moving around much, and that's going to be incredibly uh, damaging. So I think with, uh, with caloric intake, it does uh, relate back to um, uh, how much we, we end yeah. up using. Right, um, right. But uh, caloric restriction diets and uh, fasting, they're also like linked 
to mitochondrial health, right? Right. Yeah. And, and that's because, uh, again, the, the fewer calories we consume, and remember calories at the cellular level um, translates into electrons, the fewer calories we consume, the fewer electrons are that, that we pump into the electron transport chain and the, the lower risk we have of those spilling out and creating those damaging free radicals. Mm. And, and it kind of ties in together with, with the beta oxidation as well and burning fat and uh, yeah, you, you're more efficient with your own uh, body fat stores in the sense. So that's, that's another crucial right. thing. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, let's talk about your own personal ways of boosting your mitochondrial functioning. What are you doing every day to keep yourself mitochondrially fit and uh, engaged? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So my, my, uh, I try to stay physically fit as much as possible. So for me, um, and I don't, uh, I do have a gym membership and I, it goes in waves. Sometimes I, I'm very uh, consistent with my, uh, my exercise routine at a gym, but, uh, for me, it's really just everyday movement. Uh, just, you know, if, uh, choosing to take the stairs uh, instead of the elevator. Um, you know, um, I sit at a desk uh, for most part of the, the day. So just making sure that I get up and moving as, as often as I can. Uh, things like that uh, is, is the, uh, the base. But uh, then, of course, uh, minimizing the toxic exposures that I have that can damage my mitochondria. So I tr um, my diet is all natural, uh, mostly organic. And um, I... Um, I, I, our, our home is pretty much toxin free uh, as much as possible. We don't use any, you know, chemical cleaners or anything like that. So, so just minimizing the, any, um, potential, uh, toxin exposure as, as much as possible. I know it's impossible to eliminate everything, but uh, as much as possible. And then i uh, then I take uh, supplements. So one of the things that I take on a regular basis is coenzyme Q10, uh, magnesium, and then on occasion, I take uh, things like uh, L-carnitine and D-ribose as well. So those are the, the things. And, and once in a while, I'll, I'll take a little bit of PQQ. But with PQQ, uh, I, I don't even know if that's going to do much because, uh, again, according to the studies, are showing that you need to take it on a daily basis before you, you, mm. you get the benefit. So I might you know, be wasting my money with <laughs> just taking <laughs> the odd PQQ here and there. But in terms yeah. of uh, what I'm doing consistently, it's, it's really the magnesium and, and CoQ10. Uh, and, and the derivals. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Like you have to be doing something every day to keep the flame alive in a sense, to keep the mitochondria engaged and to, and to put that kind of uh, energy demand onto them so that they would increase their biogenesis and then maintain their efficiency. So yeah, definitely different right. movement breaks, moving every day, sweating, doing something difficult and also like temperature alterations, you know, cold heat, those things are very... Yes very important then they're not the part of the um, evolutionary landscape or the evolutionary adaptation of our body they're not a part in the modern world and we have to simply implement them into our our modern lifestyle and biohack it in a sense so yeah yes that's right and i'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the things that we do um, at night we turn down the heat uh, in our in our home so it gets a lot chillier at night and there's actually a study that showed that individuals that um, turn down their heat at night produce more brown fat mm -hmm. um, and then of course uh, i have i have two two boys that keep me very active so <laughs> that, that helps me stay physically fit as well that's awesome yeah but uh um, we're starting to end the, reach the end of the podcast as well. And before I ask my last question, I want to ask you, like, what would be this advice or habit that you wish you'd adopted earlier that would improve, improve your body and your mind? 
Um, I think physical activity. Um, no, I've been physically fit all my life. I grew up playing hockey and uh, taekwondo, uh, lacrosse as well. But um, when I hit university, a lot of that stopped. And one thing that I did notice is that my, my lean body mass, my muscle mass um, uh, went down. So, you know, most people, when they stop exercising, they start to, to gain weight. Uh, for me, it was the opposite um, because I wasn't maintaining my, my lean body mass. I started to lose it. And, um, and just because of the, uh, the, uh, what my, my studies required and what my, my day-to-day work requires, um, it, it doesn't give me the opportunity to be as physically fit as, as I would want. And again, I think um, I, it's incredibly important to be physically active when it comes to mitochondria. So if I had to kind of go back and do things over again, uh, is to place a lot more emphasis on being physically fit. Now, again, I try as much as possible, but uh, I think I would uh, sign up for some organized uh, sports, even even though it's uh, you know just at a recreational level. I think that would really help um, help me, especially team sports where you have somewhat of a you feel like you have an obligation to other right, people right. to to show up on a weekly basis. I think things like that would would be um, something that I would uh, do if I had the chance to do it over again. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like bad habits tend to creep up on you only if there's if it's too late. So you have to constantly keep monitoring yourself and keep uh, keep yourself active, and uh, mm-hmm. that's the key. So where can people mo- learn more about uh, you and your book? Well, uh, my book is available online uh, through Amazon. It's uh, uh, Andrea and the Future of Medicine. Uh, so you can uh, take a look there if you want to uh, contact me. You can. I- I'm on Twitter at. Uh, Lee No, so L E E K N O W 3D, um, and my website. Uh, you, there's a contact form there, so it's just leeno.com. I, I had a good time, so that was good. That's it for this episode. Make sure you leave us a review on iTunes and other social media platforms. And other than that, subscribe, click the like, notification bell as well. Like always, thanks for watching. My name is Seem. Stay optimal. Stay empowered.